Tonight, as we begin, we pick up with where we left off in chapter 13. When we left off in 13, we find that John saw a beast rise out of the sea with seven heads and ten crowns, and it received a deadly wound that later healed. And we know that that symbolized Rome, and the the time of papal supremacy was from 538 to 1798. 1798, it received a fatal wound when Napoleon sent General Berthier into Rome and arrested Pope uh, Pius VI, and he died in jail. It's also the same time period that the Rosetta Stone is found, which was helpful in understanding the book of Daniel. But people thought that the papacy was dead, but it doesn't say it would be dead. It said it would receive a deadly wound. But in 1929, when Napoleon, excuse me, when Mussolini signed a concordat with the Vatican, it restored the temporal power of the Vatican and made Vatican City uh, an independent nation with a monarch, the, the Pope. And since that time, that small 18-hole golf course of a size kingdom has exerted influence all around the world. Notice the second piece. It was lamb-like, but it spoke as a dragon. A lamb is a cuddly, loving thing. And the lamb-like beast, which was a very peaceful animal, it had two horns, the separation of church and state. But as the prophecy progressed, it said it would speak with the voice of a dragon. And it would be a persecuting power. The dragon, of course, symbolizes Satan working through governments. And it would speak with authority. And it would actually create an image to the beast. Now notice also that the saints were persecuted, it said, for 42 months. 42 months translates into 1,260 years. Now you need to remember that the Hebrew year was 360 days. They used a lunar year. And how they would correct it, periodically, they'd throw in an extra month to make the numbers come out right. But when you're calculating prophecy, you still calculate it with the, the number 360 for a year. No man could buy or sell unless he had the mark, the name, or the number of the beast in his forehead and hand. Uh, it's interesting to notice, we mentioned last time, and I showed a slide on this, that one of the many names for the, the Pope is vicarious filiae day, and when that is translated from into uh, Latin or uh, Roman numerals, it adds up to six six six. Well, you may say, as some have said, well, yeah, but he's called by other names too. That's true. The Italian Church in Greek, in the Greek language, if you use the Greek numerals instead of Roman numerals, it's Italica. Ecclesia. And when you use that Greek translation, it still adds up to 666. We find that another name, the Latin speaking man, or the Latin church in Greek, in Latin in particular, it's Latino, Latinos. That adds up to 666. We find also that Another name is Hilatine Basilia. That also adds up to 666. And we find that his name in different languages, in the Babylonian language, the hidden God, the word stir, S-T-U-R, that adds up to 666. And so we find that it's more than just one of his names. Many of his titles, or those titles that are describing the Latin church, still comes up to the number 666. 
So it's not as though, as some have said, you take the name Ronald Reagan and you can make 666 come up from that. And some people have calculated 666 from that. But Ronald Reagan didn't live 1,260 years. I know he was one of our older presidents, but he wasn't that old, right? And he didn't persecute the church for that time and wear out the saints or change laws and times. So we find that the saints were persecuted for 42 months, which is the same as time times half time, which is 1,260 years. No man could buy or sell, it says, unless he had the mark, the name, or the number of the beast in his forehead and his hand, his thinking and his actions. The number of the beast, it tells us, is 666. Three score, 60, and six, which is the number of his title or the title of a man. Now, as we go into chapter 14, I want you to notice something. The significance of this chapter will be missed unless we view it in relation to chapters 12 and 13. John is watching, he's watching the preparations for the final battle between two great opposing powers. The enemy of all righteousness is marshalling his strength against God's loyal remnant. Even America, the champion of freedom, will forget her history. With such a combination of evil and all the world acclaiming the greatness of the beast in his image, how can true Christianity possibly survive? That's what the the whole basis of this is. When you have an extreme on this side where extreme liberalism is taking people into atheism and secularism, And then on the other side, you're going into apostate Christianity and false religion. People wonder, where is truth? Where's the middle ground? Where is the word of God? And so it's not a matter of choosing between one evil or another evil. It's what brings us back to biblical religion. That's what the people of God are looking for. It begins in chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. It begins by talking about a small group of people. Now that doesn't, 144,000 is a big group of people to us. But when you stop to think about the millions of people who are caught up or involved with this great controversy, it's a small group of people. And we ran into these 144,000 a little earlier in chapter 7. If you look back in chapter 7 of Revelation, you will find where they are enumerated. It says in 7 verse 5, of the tribe of Judah, there were 12,000 sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, there were 12,000 sealed. Gad, the same. Asher, the same. Naphtali, the same. Uh, Manasseh, the same. Simeon, the same. Levi, the same. Issachar the same, Zebulun the same, Joseph the same, and Benjamin the same. And we pointed out that there were two tribes that were missing. One was the tribe of what? Dan. The tribe of Dan. Dan was considered a backbiter. Uh, He was one that was always discouraging people. He was judgmental and critical. And as we mentioned before, if you've got a critical spirit, you better get rid of it fast if you want to get into the kingdom. The other was the tribe of... Hmm, I hear you. I hear the wheels going around. The tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim is joined to her idols. Leave her alone. People who are caught up in idolatry. It's not just the those who are bowing down to false gods and images, it's also people, maybe their idol is their money or popularity or some other thing. Could be their appetite even. If they have idols in their lives, better get rid of them if you want to be among the 144,000. So it mentions them in chapter 7. 
when we get over to chapter 14, it draws our attention really close to them and helps us to understand what they were like. Look at verse 1. It says, I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is a term that's used in the Bible to refer to the mountain of God. Okay? Basically speaking, it would be God working on his church, if you want to put it on an earthly level. And with him, of course, this is in heaven that he's looking. And with him, 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. Now, I mentioned before that your name is your character, right? They have the character of the father written in their foreheads. The Indians, American Indians, and many times the Hebrew people, they would wait till after a child was born to see what characteristics that child had before they'd name them. We don't do that necessarily today in our culture, but they did. So names were important. And these are people who represented the character of the Heavenly Father. It was in their heads, their foreheads, in their thinking. It was a part of them. Look at verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters. Now, we run into that expression several times. Sometimes it'll say a voice of a multitude or the voice of rolling thunder or whatever. It's the voice from heaven is spoke as the voice of many waters. Like, how can I say? Did you ever sit by a, a brook and hear the water flowing by? It just kind of rolls through. And as the voice of great thunder just rolling across the heavens as it speaks. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. Harpers harping with their harps. I like music. I like harp music. I never played it, but I like listening to it. I remember when I, a few years back, I was having, I was out in New York State when I had a gallbladder attack. And uh, they rushed me down to the hospital. And it was a lady doctor who was working on me. And one of the nurses said, oh, she's a wonderful harpist. She records her music and she sells it on CDs. And I mentioned to her, I, I said, you know, I told the doctor, I said, you know, I hear you're a wonderful harpist. She says, well, yes, I've made a few recordings. I said, I just want you to know I love harps. But when I go under that operation, the last thing I want to hear is harps playing. (laughs) And so, anyway, it sounded like the voice of harpers harping, uh, playing their harps. And notice what it says in verse 3. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth. Now notice, it's a song that only the 144,000 can sing. Why? It's their experience. You know, have you ever connected with a song that that has special meaning to you because you have had a similar experience. And you can sing it with uh, the emotion that goes with it that others can't. And so only the 144,000 can sing this. Now, who are these 144,000? A lot of people have speculated on who they are, but it tells us right there. It says they were redeemed from the earth. These were human beings. They're not angels. They're not creatures from outer space or aliens. They are human beings who were redeemed from the earth. Now, the only time that we have people being taken to heaven, well, we had Enoch. He went up, but he didn't die. He just went up to heaven. And then we find Elijah. He went up to heaven. You know, he just went up in a chariot. And let's see, 
the rest of them, if I recall, I'm trying to think if I missed anybody, but I don't think anybody else went up until Jesus' ascension. And when he ascended and went up to heaven, he took a group of people from the grave with him. The only other time I can think of anybody, any humans going up, was when, uh, when Jesus comes back again, the second coming. They are then redeemed from the earth as well. So these 144,000, who might they be? What we know is they were redeemed from the earth. Let's look at this new song for a moment. As John watches, he's enthralled by the sound of singing. It's like the rolling of many waters or the voice of a great multitude. Forty-six times in the apocalypse, voices are heard. And they are almost all voices of victory. What are they singing? They're singing victory over the beast and his image. And notice, it says, this is not only a song of victory, it's a song of experience. It's coming from their own heart, their own lives. Only those who have passed through the time of trouble, who have stood firmly for God's truth when all the world wandered after the beast, and who have witnessed the awful effects of the seven last plagues, will be able to join in this particular song. It is a new song, for it records a new experience. It is a majestic and sublime song, yet sweet and tender, the most lovely song in heaven or earth. It's like harpers harping with their harps. Those only who have experienced full salvation over sin can learn it and sing it. It's interesting that the Bible talks also about another song. It talks about the song of Moses. Moses and the Lamb, remember? And so we find that these people can not only sing the song of Moses, but they can also sing the song of the Lamb from their own personal experience. As we look at verse 4, these are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. There are some who want to take that literally, and therefore they never marry. You see, that's not what it's saying. First off, a woman is what? A church, right? All right. Or an organization that teaches religious teachings. And notice they were not defiled with them. They did not go chasing after false teachings, false doctrines, for they are virgins. They are pure in their relationship with God in seeking truth, in seeking the word of God. The Bible talks about the pure, chaste virgin. They are the ones who are uh, seeking biblical religion and a biblical experience with God. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. So wherever the Lamb goes, these will follow him. They are his courtiers. You might say they are the presidential cabinet or whatever. But they are the ones who help him in his administration. How it all works out, I don't know. I can only speculate from what Scripture tells us. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. They are the firstfruits. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are um, the first ones ever to go to heaven. For we find Enoch did that and Elijah did that. But they are the first fruit or the sweetest or the ripest of those that have been redeemed from the earth. So being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. So it's a position. It's a title that they are given. Look at verse 5. And in their mouths was found no guile. Now what does guile mean? All right, deception, lying, deceitfulness. All right, there was no guile in them. In plain words, they, what they said, they meant. 
I don't know how many politicians there'll be up there. But, you know, but uh, anyway, it. Uh, someone once said, I don't think there'll be any lawyers in heaven, but I don't know. Anyway, and it, or used car salesmen, perhaps. <laughs> and in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. God can't find anything wrong with them. Why? Because they have overcome sin through the blood of the Lamb, through the power of Christ. And so this is the scene that we see of the 144,000. It doesn't elaborate much beyond that. He changes now his focus. And as John looks in verses 6 through 13, we find that he starts seeing some other angels that show up on the scene, and in particular, three. And these three angels' announcements are very important. Look at verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the what? everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Sounds to me like that's a worldwide missionary outreach. And we find that after the papacy was brought down in 1798, and before it was restored in uh, 1929, that time in between, we find a great missionary effort coming up. We find the uh, British and Foreign Bible Society, the American Bible Society coming up, and various missions sending out people to the world, taking the Bible to various parts of the world. And even within the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we find coming up our great missionary program, and reaching out to other countries. And as this happened, we find that the everlasting gospel, it doesn't change, it's the same gospel back in the time of Jesus, the same good news that we have salvation by faith through Jesus, that we have atonement with God because he is the Lamb of God. He's the substitutionary, divine human Son of God who paid the penalty for our sins. That's good news, isn't it? And what does the word gospel mean? The word gospel means good news. And this is the good news, the same good news, and it's the same good news that will be forever. And it began to be preached through all the the earth. Notice verse 7. Saying with a loud voice. This was not a whimper. You find that there were coming up now great evangelists and revivalists who began to preach the message all over. And so this was a a loud voice. Fear God. Fear God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, right? And fearing God is the whole duty of man, it tells us. So, Fearing God means to respect God. And notice, give glory to him. To acknowledge him as the creator and as the redeemer and as the ultimate judge of the earth. For the hour of his judgment is come. It's already moving. It's already in progress. Some translations say has come. And worship him that made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. Now, notice that whenever God's movement is about to take place, the devil also has a counterfeit. The devil counterfeits everything. That's why you can't just read the Bible. You've got to study the Bible to sort the, the difference. And notice it says that He's the one that made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. What's it saying? The creator God, right? Isn't it interesting that about this time, a fellow by the name of Charles Darwin comes up. And he starts promoting, and interestingly enough, he, he had been a theology student. He, he studied 
for the ministry divinity. By the way, so did Stalin, just with communism, you know. And so we find that some of these fellows actually um, had theological background. But because they didn't believe the word of God, they turned to look to alternate origins. And so we find here that along comes the theory of evolution. Now, that had been around long before Darwin. But Darwin just popularized it. He formulated it. And notice, worship him that made the heavens the earth. This is the creator God. If this is the God who created us, then we must have some obligation to that God, right? And if we have an obligation to him, and he is the one that's ultimately going to judge us, don't you think that maybe we ought to know what he's going to judge us by? And so we start looking back at the criterion. And as we see the criteria, we see that, first off, he is the creator, which means we didn't get here. It's not from goo to you by way of the zoo. It's you are specifically created in the image of God, you see. And the creation story also includes a day of rest. And so some of these things were coming to the forefront as was the judgment. William Miller, really, uh, he was trying to get the people prepared not only to greet Jesus when he came, but also to avoid the judgment that was going to come upon the wicked. And so we find that their, their thoughts are turned back to the creator God, who would also be the judging God. And notice, too, it says to worship him. Now, what does this mean? That means to acknowledge, to uh, respect, to honor, to bow down. There's a bunch of different uh, definitions you could put in there. What's the one thing that the devil wants? Worship, right? And that's the one thing that God forbids all created beings to give him. Created beings cannot worship other created beings. And when we went through our seminar, our unfolding revelation, and we talked about the fact that in the book of Hebrews, it really brings this out, that the angels had a problem, you see. Before Jesus ever came to the earth, he was divine, and they acknowledged that. That was no problem. They could worship him then. But the moment he was born as a little baby, the angels have a problem. He's got human flesh. And in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that God told the angels that they should worship him. And here, they weren't going to bow down to him unless God the Father told them that they could worship him. And so we find here that Worship is what the devil wants. And he wants worship through his representative, the beast and the image to the beast. Okay? Let's look at verse 8. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Now I mentioned to you before that when something is repeated in the Bible, it's a sign of emphasis. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Truly, truly, I say unto thee. Whatever he says that, he's saying, listen up, folks, this is important. Now, notice he says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. Why repeat it twice? Well, ancient Babylon, which had false worship, had fallen, right? But there's also a spiritual Babylon in the last days that is fallen, too. It's got all kinds of religious confusion in there that's leading people astray. It's not true, pure, holy religion anymore. It's got paganism and false teachings interwoven 
with the gospel of Christ. And so Babylon has fallen, has fallen. That great city, when it talks about a great city, it's usually talking about a church. For we find that Jerusalem was the great city that symbolized all that was good and holy and righteous. Babylon, which represented all that was defiled and false. The ultimate great city is the city of God in heaven, right? And so, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, drink of the wine. The wine is the teachings, the doctrines, the beliefs. Where did these beliefs come from? It came from fornication. Fornication is an illicit, illegal uh, relationship. And since he's using the symbolism of a woman, it's saying that she is a loose woman who has adopted foreign husbands, chasing after other gods. And those false teachings have polluted the drink the wine, the teachings, the doctrines that she's supposed to be giving. And because of this, she will suffer God's wrath. What is God's wrath? And quite frankly, I mean, there's a bunch of different things you could say about the wrath of God. But the ultimate wrath of God is simply in the great judgment of the wicked. It's when Christ gets out of the way. He's He's between us and the Father. And when Christ moves out of the way and we see the glory of God without any filter, my God is a fire that consumes the wicked, you see. And so this is what he's referring to. Also, there will be plagues that will fall. And these plagues really are designed to get the attention of people if they're going to repent at all, they'll do it. Look at the uh, plagues of Egypt. You see, it may have been terrible when you had flies and frogs and lice and all this other stuff all around. But if Pharaoh had said, yes, Lord, you are supreme, I am not, he wouldn't have been exposed to all that. If he had repented, but each time he didn't repent. It was harder for him to say yes to God the next time. And so this is the reason for the plagues in the last days. Of course, by that time, they've already pretty much made their decisions. But there's always those who will say, well, if you only gave him one more chance, maybe he'd change his mind. Well, we find that happening also at the end of the millennium. God even releases the devil for a little while and his angels to see if they've changed their mind. They haven't. They've tried to take the holy city and carry on their criminal intent. Look at verse 9 now. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship, there's that word again, the beast and his image, and receive his mark in their foreheads or in his hand. What is the mark? It's the sign of their allegiance, their loyalty, their observance of teachings that are contrary to the commandments of God. The catechism of subdenominations, the second commandment is completely cut out of there. Bowing down to images or having images in your church. They are that people can worship or pray to. The Bible says not to do that. But there are some religious organizations who say it's okay. We find that the Ten Commandments, when we get down to the Sabbath commandment, most of the catechisms will say, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. But it doesn't tell you which day that is. If you were going to a party, they said, well, look, uh, my birthday is going to be on March 12th. I want you all to come. Uh, and so most of you would try to be there on March 12th, right? 
But I come in later and say, oh, I didn't make the party because you didn't tell me which year. Well, duh, I meant this year, you see. God specifically tells us the seventh day. And so when does the seventh day begin? Well, some people say, well, let's start at 6 o'clock and end at 6 o'clock. Some people say, well, the Sabbath is Saturday, therefore from midnight Friday night all the way to midnight Saturday night. That's the Sabbath. No. What's the scripture say? From sunset Friday to sunset Saturday, the whole 24-hour period is my Sabbath to keep holy. I remember I used to keep Sunday, and uh, we would stay out Saturday night, go to the drive-in, and uh, we'd stay out to 2 o'clock in the morning doing the intermissions. You know, sometimes they'd have intermissions so you could go get junk food and so forth. We would open the back of the trunk of the car, turn the radio up real loud, and we'd all stand out there, uh, go out into the parking lot and dance. And then when the film came back on, we slammed the trunk, turned down the music, and watched the movie again. And we'd stay out to 2 o'clock in the morning. We'd come home at night, and I had to get up the next day to sing in choir. I'm not that great a singer anyway, but I don't know how I made it in choir, but I did. And we sat right behind the preacher. And he got a tad bit upset with us because we'd be dozing off during his sermon. Not that that would ever happen in your church, I'm sure, but we would doze off during the sermon, and he thought that wasn't a good idea to have the congregation doing uh, the same thing we were doing. So I thought just going to church, a Sunday school and to church, the rest of the time was mine. I could go do what I wanted, go play football, go bowling, whatever I wanted to do. That's all. Because the Sabbath was only a few hours. But that isn't what God says. He says the whole 24-hour period. It's a sign of our allegiance, our loyalty, our allegiance to God. It's his flag. What's a flag? It's a banner. That's why he says, if you will stop trampling on my Sabbath with your muddy boots, I will raise you high. Why? Would you do that to the American flag? Would you stomp all over with your muddy boots? Why? Because it's a symbol of our nation. It's a symbol of our loyalty to our nation. And so it is with the Sabbath. It's the symbol of our loyalty to God, you see. And all of this is caught up in the message of the three angels. And to make an image to the beast is to substitute the commandments of men for the commandments of God. And what is the mark of the beast? We ran into that before. The Catholic Church says the changing of the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday is the mark of their authority over the commandments of God. You saw it in print. I put it on the screen. It's the mark of their authority. So what then if the beast that we talked about in chapter 13, the first beast, was the papacy, an apostate religion, what must the mark of that beast be? Their claims to authority to change the commandments of God. Now, if the church really has that authority, now remember the scripture says he would think to change times and laws. All right, if the church really had the authority to change the commandments of God, then why can't the same church say that it is all right to commit abortions? You know, the Bible says thou shalt not kill. Oh yeah, but that's all right. We've done away with that. It's all right now to be able to commit abortions, you see. But they don't want to change that one. 
but they want to change the one that has to do with the day of worship. And so when we talk about the mark in his forehead, it's in the conscience of men. It's the studying. It's the having it become a part of us. And in his hands, the actions, doing either the mark of the beast or the mark of the best. Either the mark of the beast or they do God's will. Look at verse 10. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, the fire and brimstone. I've never felt fire and brimstone. Uh, did you ever have, anybody ever get burned by hot sulfur? What about salt? Anybody ever get burned with hot salt? I know if you have a cut in your hand and you put salt in it, boy, you can really feel that. But there are some things, like phosphorus, that keeps burning and burning and burning. You know, it seems like the more you try to put it out, the more it burns. And basically what this is saying, the wrath of God poured out without mixture into the cup. Mixture of what? Mixture of mercy. Mixture with, without the intervention between the fallen humans and God. And without God's love intervening. And notice, into the cup of indignation. God's insulted by that kind of worship. He's indignant about it. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, it's interesting that when the wicked are destroyed, it's going to be a public destruction. All the angels that came back with Christ, all the holy beings, wherever they are throughout the universe, they will see what's going on down here. And in the presence of the holy angels, why not the unholy angels? Because the hellfire is reserved for the devil and his angels. But if you want to be in it, you can. It's your choice. And so he's giving us an option to get out of that. In the presence of the Lamb, Christ is the Lamb. Why would Christ look at this? Christ has done all that he could to save these people. But they chose to jump in the fire. And so this is what God wants to spare us from. Look at uh, verse 11. And the smoke of the torments ascended up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Those who refused to accept the salvation that Christ offers, those who chose to believe a lie rather than to accept the truth, we find that they will find themselves in very unpleasant company with the devil and his angels. Now notice it mentions the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever. Well, there you go. Doesn't that prove that when people burn in the hellfire, they're burning for good and forever? On Fridays, did you ever go to Walmart or Myers or a major store and you say, i got to just run in and get something. You know, I've got a half an hour before sunset. I'll, I'll just run in and get a bottle of milk and something. I'll be out. Did you ever go in the store on a Friday? I don't know where all the people come from, but everybody comes out on Friday. And they're all in your line. And I think it's a conspiracy or something. Huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fifteen minutes, i got to be out of here. And there's a mile-long line. And when you get out to the car, whoever's waiting in your car said, Boy, that was a long couple of minutes you were going to be in there. You've been in there a half an hour. Oh, I got in the line, and I was in that line forever. 
You used that word in its biblical sense. You see, the word forever is an indefinite period of time. Actually, it means as long as life lasts, you see. And here, the forever for the wicked, their forever will be until they stop burning. For the righteous, their forever will be for a zillion years ahead, as long as life lasts, because life is given to them. And by the way, don't forget, you still have to eat of the fruit and the leaves of the tree of life, too, to prolong that life. God still is going to require obedience in the new earth. So don't think, you know, we're, we're fixed for life because we still have an obligation to him. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Those who, those who have accepted the authority of the beast's power over God's will, notice they will burn until they are consumed. It's interesting, when I was in Israel, I went down to the, um, the Dead Sea. And we looked all around for evidence of where Sodom and Gomorrah might have been. There's different ideas as to where it might have been located. But um, I didn't see any smoke coming up out of the water. And it mentions that Sodom and Gomorrah, the smoke of their burning went up forever. Well, I didn't see any smoke. What it meant was the result of their burning is forever. There's no second chance. And here, there's no second chance. When we uh, do not give our heart to the Lord and we choose to be in the fire, we are consumed and go out of existence. If this building were to burn down, you could build it again. And if you had a really good architect, you might be able to put it back just the way it looks now. But would it be the same building? The first building is gone forever, you see. And it cannot be completely restored. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. So, we find here, if the wicked are going to be destroyed, then who is it that's going to make it into the kingdom? Who are the redeemed of the earth? They are those who have the patience. Now, the word patience means steadfastness. They hang in there. He that endureth to the end shall be saved. Right? Here, are, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God, all of them, not because they have to, but because they love him, if you love me, keep my commandments. It becomes a part of their character. Christ's character becomes their character, you see. And the faith of Jesus. Jesus said, my father and I are one. And he tells us that as the father loves him, he loves his people. And he says he is in the image of God and we are to be in his image. Well, if we are in his image, then we must be in the image of God too, you see. And so we find here the faith of Jesus was the kind of faith that Jesus had, a self-sacrificing faith, one that said, I don't like crosses, I don't like nails, I don't like people spitting on me and pulling out my beard, I don't like being whipped with a whip, but Father, if that's what it takes, it's not what I want. Your will be done. This is what he expects of his people if they're going to be a part of that group that's going to be around the throne of God. So they have the faith of Jesus, the kind of faith Jesus had, and they have faith in Jesus. 
that he is indeed the Messiah. And so, in verse 13 it says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Now look at that carefully. We are saved by the grace of God because of our faith. But we are judged by our works. Right? Is it wrong for us to, if a person says, uh, I am a good Christian, and I love the Lord, and I'm a good Christian. And then they're robbing banks and killing people and committing, you know, fornication and so forth. Do you kind of wonder the depth of commitment of their Christianity? Now, does that make you a judgmental person? No, by their fruits ye shall know them. If we say we really love the Lord, don't you think it should show up in what we do? Remember, it's not only in the forehead, but also our hand has to play a part in this. So we find that there's a faith-works relationship. Remember that choices lead to deeds, right? Deeds practiced enough become a habit. Habits that are practiced long enough become your character. And your character will either go with you to heaven or it will suffer warmer climates. It will be in the fire with the garbage. And so we find here that he says, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Now notice, he's talking about those who have died believing and trusting in Jesus. And they will rest from their labors. Their works will follow them. And when Jesus comes back again, they will receive the reward. If they have done good works in the first resurrection, they will receive the reward of eternal life. If their deeds and their habits and their character are that of evil, they will rise again, but it will be in the second resurrection. And that's the resurrection that will lead to the destroying fire when the garbage dump is burned up. The word Gehenna means the fires of Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom. What did they do in the Valley of Hinnom? That's where the idols were dumped. That's where the criminals' bodies were dumped. That's where all the garbage was dumped. And they would have a fire constantly going there to burn this stuff up for sanitation purposes. And the worms, you throw dead bodies in there, the worms will work on it, and when the flames start getting too close, the worms move out and go someplace else, and that's consumed, and they're working on something else. That's what it's saying when it talks about his worm dies not. It means that it's destroying those things that need to be destroyed. The word Gehenna is translated hell, but it's the only hot hell. We mentioned before when we talked about hell, there are different words that mean hell. In the Old Testament, it is Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead, the grave. That's not hot. That's cold, especially in Michigan in the winter. Okay? That's cold. But why is it hell? Because you are decaying and rotting. And in the New Testament, its counterpart is the word Hades, which means the same thing, the grave. So if they say it's hot as Hades in here, go put a coat on. Because Hades isn't hot. It's cold. It's the grave. Then the third word that only Peter uses is the word Tartarus. Tartarus means outer darkness. He's cast as far from God's presence as possible. And believe me, 
outer darkness. I think I mentioned to you once before, one time we went down into, I don't know if it was Howe Cavern or which cavern it was in. But anyway, the, the fellow said, you know, we're, we're more than a mile down under the earth. You want to see what it's like without the lights? And he flipped the light switch off. And I'll tell you, there were people all around me. But when he turned out that light, it was so dark, I could feel the darkness. Have you ever experienced that? You can actually feel the darkness within you, and you're all alone. What a creepy feeling, and what a cold feeling that is. That's the Tartarus experience. It's being out of the presence of God. And this is what Jesus felt on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you separated yourself from me? Why have you distanced yourself from me? Why, why have you departed from me? He was feeling that Tartarus experience of being separated from his father. First time since God ever existed. First time the entire life of God that there was a fracture in the divinity and it was for your salvation. He paid the Tartarus experience. He also paid the Sheol experience. He also paid the Hades experience. And the one experience he doesn't want us to experience is the Gehenna experience. Because the Gehenna is the hellfire experience. The only time that that's used, Jesus uses in reference to the end of the world. It's in the future. It's never in the past. You see. So is hell burning right now? No, it is not. But it will be someday. And so we find that those who have evil deeds their works will follow them in the second resurrection. This is what Jesus wants to spare us from because that destruction will be forever. People who go down into the grave, yes, they'll suffer physical destruction, but they'll just sleep until Jesus awakens them to eternal life. And don't worry about the body. He'll give you a new one. You know, if he could make you one in the first place, it's a small trick to make you another one, right? It's got to be better than one you got anyway. You know, if you've got a, you know, an eye out or an ear missing or something, when you come up, you'll have them all. You'll have all the equipment you need, you see. God can do all things. And so why is he doing this? What's he talking about? He's telling us the kind of people we need to be so that when he comes back, he will harvest his crop that he will take to himself into his kingdom. And the chaff that's left behind will be left for the burning. And so we find that verses 14 through 20 talk about that. And I looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud sat one like unto the son of man having on his head a golden crown. That's a sign of victory, right? A golden one, too, which shows that it's ultimate victory. And in his hand, a sharp sickle. Why? He's coming to reap the crop. And another angel came out of the temple. Notice out of the temple. Why is he coming out of the temple? Because the investigative judgment is passed we find that the Day of Atonement experience is past. Now he's coming as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, crying with a loud voice unto him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap. The angel is coming to announce, okay, Jesus, time to go. Jesus takes off his high priest robe. Now he puts on his kingly robes. He's changing roles and positions. Before he was the Lamb of God, the sacrifice. Then he became the high priest. Now he's the king and judge of the earth. This 
is what the Jews were hoping was going to happen at the first coming of Jesus. But it happens at the second coming. Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So, verse 16. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now notice what he does here. He takes out the righteous to go with him back to the heavenly city. And those who are not taken are left behind. This is where you get that rapture thing coming in. The righteous are raptured up with Christ at his coming. And the wicked are left behind. Left behind how long? For the millennium, you see. And the righteous are reaped to go with him. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud voice to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. Now, you've got to realize certain things are going on on earth while this process is taking place in heaven. Look at verse 19. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So what's he do? He gathers them up for destruction. Look at verse 20. And the winepress was trodden without the city. Now, Jesus was crucified outside the city. He was crucified down on the earth. And so these are the ones who are cast out or are the criminals, you might say. And blood came out of the winepress. Hmm. Blood. Wine represents blood, right? Here it says blood came out. Why? As a part of the judgment. Even to the horse's bridles by the space of a thousand six hundred furlongs. Now, I'll be honest with you, I, I've read what 1,600 furlongs are, and I've forgotten it. Okay, I'd have to look it up again. But nonetheless, it's, I'll try to bring it back next time. But we see here that this is symbolically speaking about what's going on on the earth. The righteous are going to be spared from the destruction And even the children of Israel, when they received the plagues, a lot of this is referring to the time of plagues because the plagues are going to happen before Christ comes. Yes, would you share something with us, Will? For 200 miles wide. Yeah, symbolic language. So that was the furlongs, right? Yeah, okay. It says 200 miles in his Bible. So, here again, we find that this is referring to what happens with the wicked. So, as we come to the end of verse 20, we find that uh, it ends with judgment. So, we started talking about the 144,000, and John was looking. He sees a lamb standing on Mount Zion with 144,000 who have the name of the Father written in their forehead. So he's looking in heaven at that point. And they are the ones who are able to sing the new song, which no one else could sing. They were virgins of faith, redeemed from the earth, and they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. We also saw three angels give God's last warning message to the world. The identifying mark of God's people is that they keep the commandments of God and they have the faith of Jesus. So it's not speaking in tongues, it's not healing, it's not doing miracles that designate who the people of God are. 
It's whether or not they're keeping his commandments and they have faith in Jesus and the faith of Jesus. And there's one like the Son of Man. That's a messianic term. He will come to harvest the earth and to judge the earth. And the wine press was trampled outside the city up to 1,600 furlongs. That is, as he says, approximately 200 miles. Now, here again, this is symbolic language. And uh, we can't mix literal language and symbolic language unless we have obvious evidence to do so. And so we come to the end of this chapter. Now, all of this is getting ready for the pouring out of the plagues and the judgments of God. When we start moving into chapter 15 onward, now remember before in Revelation, we were talking a lot about the past, weren't we? Then we moved to the present, and now it's looking ahead to the future, which is not so far ahead. 